Uh, she stepped into here in 2006 at the NCU days when we were living in Michigan. And she said, Dad, I'm going to go to that college. And so that's kind of how I got connected with North Central University. And I'm sitting on the front row, and I'm closing my eyes. And I'm not thinking about uh, dropping my daughter off here in 2007 and crying all the way back halfway through Wisconsin, I think, is when I stopped crying. Um, I'm not thinking about uh, that. I, I, I'm, I'm thinking really about uh, this month 37 years ago, uh, when I was 17, and my parents dropped me off at Bethany um, with um, a grocery sack for my luggage. Hey, don't knock it. It worked. I, I milked that bag for about a six months. It only had a pair of shoes and two pairs of underwear and a pair of jeans in it and some basketball stuff. And my parents dropped me off in a strange place that I didn't know a single person. I was 17. I graduated kind of early from high school. I was scared to death. And uh, the whole surrounding was strange to me. And uh, my mom and dad were crying. I'm crying. Didn't want them to see I'm crying about missing them. But I was terrified. And on that very first day or two, I sat in a chapel. And the president got up. His name was Dick Foth. I heard his voice. And I just had this feeling, the same feeling I had when I heard Gordon Anderson's voice when I was crying, dropping my daughter off in college. And I have that same feeling today being around all of you. And so we just are so appreciative for the stewardship of, uh, of allowing us to be a part of your family story. Because I often joke that people talk about their hometown, their home church, and their alma mater for the rest of their life. So this is the beginning of a lifelong relationship. You're going to graduate four years, you're going to get a degree from here. You're here to earn that degree. Somebody say amen. amen. Okay. And uh, then we're going to be lifelong friends. You're going to pray for this school. You're going to visit this school. You're going to give generously to this school for the rest of your life. <laughs> this is a lifelong friendship that begins this week. And think about, think about that. And so I just want to pray today as we go to the God's word. I got something very specific I want to share on my heart with everybody here. And I'll try not to cry while I'm preaching today because uh, this is really a beautiful, beautiful sight. So let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your goodness, Lord. I know we've already lifted up your name in this place, Lord, with song and with prayer, God. And Lord, I do pray that this university would be marked by love, biblical love, Lord. There's such a distorted understanding of of kingdom and biblical love, Lord, in this world. And I pray, God, that this would be a place of clarity, God, of deep conviction and voice to the world, Lord, that people would travel, Lord, from all over this country and beyond to study our university and the culture of this university, the way this campus functions, Lord. I pray that you would bring those kinds of leaders here, those kind of students here, who would be yielded to you, Lord, and so in love with you, God, and will become Daniel chapter 5 leaders, Lord. I just pray today that your name would be lifted up and honored, God, and that today will be, it'll be like, it'll be branded, Lord, into our soul forever, Lord. This day is one of the most unusual days for families in their entire life. And Lord, I just pray it'd be filled with joy. And Lord, even though there's grief, God, it's kind of a, a good grief, a happy grief in the sense that we have a, a true bond in our families. That's why we're crying these parents have done a great job. And the pain that they feel is in some ways the reward 
of the wonderful family that they have built and the bond that their kids feel and that they feel toward them, Lord. Lord, we love you today. We give you praise in your precious name. Amen. You can be seated. You know, as I prayed, I mentioned Daniel 5, and I would like every parent here, as you pray for your student over the next four years, I want you to uh, pray Daniel 5. And if you have your Bibles, the parents especially, I want you to turn to the fifth chapter of Daniel. I want to show you the verse that when I think about the development of your student leaders over these next four years, here's how I pray for them, that they would become Daniel 5 leaders. Now, this was said of Daniel when he was about 85, not 18, but it shows the kind of person that the Lord emerged throughout the lifespan of Daniel. Now, think about Daniel. He spent his entire life, not just a portion of his life, but his entire life in captivity. Being an adolescent, maybe 13 to 15, when he was taken out of the nation of Judah and taken to Babylon, he spent his entire life in a setting that he did not choose. And so sometimes the Lord can take us to a strange place, a new place, a place that we did not have on our map. And he places us there, and the person that we become in that setting is something we never could have dreamed we could have become in the Lord. So when I, when I pray Daniel 5, it's kind of a combination of verse 11, verse 14, and verse 16. And I want every parent here to become deeply familiar with verse 11, verse 14, and verse 16. The queen tells, at that time, the uh, king of Babylon, his, his, his kingdom is coming to a dramatic uh, conclusion, quite a dramatic conclusion. And there was this handwriting on the wall that was indiscernible. Some scholars believe that it was a language that had never been scribed before. It was lettering that could not even be interpreted by somebody that knew linguistics. It was like a heavenly script. And so they brought in all of their go-to conjurers and sorcerers, and nobody could interpret it. And then the queen says, there is this person. We haven't heard from him in years. He's older now. They drug him out from wherever he was living And Daniel appears, and it says in verse 11, there is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. They couldn't even, they didn't even have a way to describe what was on this guy. In whom is the spirit of the gods, and in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, was found in him. Now down to verse 14. Now I heard about you, so Daniel's been brought in. And that the spirit of the gods is in you, that illumination and insight and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Um, And just now the wise men of the conscience were brought in before uh, me that they might read the inscription and make its interpretation known, but they could not do it. Verse 16, but I personally have heard about you, that you were able to give interpretation to solve difficult problems. And so here is, I know in an Old Testament sense, the Christian that's brought in at the highest levels of government that has the capacity to interpret dreams and solve the problems for the economy. When I pray over the students that we're emerging, this is how I pray. Whether they are pastors, missionaries, or whether they run Microsoft one day out of here, or become the governor or the president or whatever comes out of North Central, I do believe you can go anywhere in the world from this campus, and I can prove it with our recent graduates. But I pray that that ability to interpret dreams and understand the cultural problems, the quandaries, the riddles of our society, 
that a spirit of wisdom of the kingdom of God would rest in every one of our students and that the world would look at them and said, there's something about you. We have tested every graduate from Harvard, Stanford. We try to find anybody that's smart. Nobody can figure this out. And then they call forth a leader that's been trained in this setting that will be able to speak life and understanding. So parents, I'm praying that over your students and I want you to pray that with me as well for them. Okay, I wanna talk just for about two minutes about the university and then we're gonna be in Mark chapter eight. Get your Bibles ready if you will. I'm so deeply appreciative of our team. The talent is everywhere um, in this place. And I I first wanna introduce though my amazing uh, co-leader of my life and uh, this ministry and this university and everything else that, that uh, I do in life. And that is my, my amazing wife, Karen. Now, she doesn't like to be introduced where she stands up and waves because she's so much more than a wave, uh, if you know her. But Karen, uh, would you stand up? I want everybody to see you. And uh, that's my wife, Karen, right there. She's a great, a great, great woman of God. When I think about the university and pray for this school, um, as I mentioned, I stepped on this campus following in the amazing leadership steps of Dr. Gordon Anderson, who served this university for over 30 years, 22 as the president. He became the reason I was so drawn to the university. And uh, his friendship about 15, 16 years ago, his impact in my daughter's life was profound. And I'm very grateful for the stewardship of serving in this role of simply taking the baton at this stage in history of the university and uh, carrying on that great grace that rests over North Central under his leadership. And I mean that from the depths of my heart. Um, And the team around uh, Dr. Anderson, the faculty and the staff are second to none. I think many of them are here today. Our university leadership team, which means everybody that from housekeeping to a vice president is our university leadership team around here. If you are in the service today and you serve this university in any capacity in leadership, you are an RA, a DA, an RL, what all the the, uh, letters mean. Um, Like, who's that? Who's that? Who's that? Um, You're the vice president or you help keep this campus beautiful. I want all of our university leadership to stand up. Faculty, staff, everybody. Would you guys stand to your feet? Can we show our appreciation for this amazing army of people right here? All of them. All of them. All of them mean the world mean the world to the kingdom of God and to this university and to your students. As I pray, I I put together what I call kind of my 21 possibilities of a beautiful university. I'm not giving you those 21, but I I am gonna give you, I think, five or six real quick. How I think and pray for your student. When I was writing about coming here and kind of meeting with the teams during the process of the interview, the Lord began to download things to my heart about What really is the mission of a beautiful university? And I use that term constantly about this being a beautiful, not just a beautiful setting, but a beautiful atmosphere, a beautiful culture of growth and learning. And so when I pray for this place, here's some things that were in my heart, and I got my clicker here, make sure it works. My right arrow, look at that. The mission and mindset of a beautiful university. I'm just gonna give you five or six of these. First of all, I pray that we would build a strong reputation for spiritual vitality, missional significance, and intellectual vigor. I believe that is trait number one of a beautiful university. I wanna recruit and educate the finest young people from all over the United States and mold them into promising leaders with the skills and vision to change the world. And we're praying for just those kind of students. 
I want to stand unsurpassed at producing ministry graduates who are fully prepared for kingdom leadership roles. I want to produce graduates in the liberal arts who can articulate a thoughtful integration of faith, work, and economics across multiple platforms of society. And these last three are dear to my heart. I want to fill the heart of each NCU student with a love and dedication to the local church for the rest of their life. I want to produce leadership-ready graduates with emotional maturity and intellectual readiness. And I want to see every NCU graduate equipped with a vision for building a Christ-centered family. I tell my kids all the time, the greatest contribution you will leave this planet is not the church you plant or the business you build. Build a great family. Can somebody say amen? So we, we pray they're going to meet their wonderful spouse. When my daughter was here, she met a boy from Wisconsin, and uh, they weren't dating, but a better boy. And I said, I thought, Wisconsin, that's too far away. And then she ended up meeting a boy from Brazil and moving to Brazil. I should have took the Wisconsin deal when it was on the table. <laughs> no, we love our Brazilian son-in-law with all of our heart. Hallelujah. All righty, take your Bibles, let's go here. Let's go to Mark chapter eight, verses 13 through 21. Mark chapter eight, verses 13 through 21, here we go. The scripture says, leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. And they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. So remember that phrase, they had one loaf of bread in the boat. And he was giving orders to them. So they were having a classroom out on the high seas. Jesus is talking to all of the folks in the boat, out on the water, and begins to break down this little quiz and Bible lesson. And he was giving orders to them saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So Jesus just initiates this idea, letting them know that when you mix a little invisible religion or political power with the kingdom, you're going to distort the purity of the kingdom. It doesn't mean that we don't engage in assault and in citizenship into a broken world. We absolutely want to be that. But don't mix the message of the power of Herod or politics with the kingdom and don't mix the leaven of the Pharisees, a little invisible legalism and law into the kingdom message. So Jesus is saying, beware not to mix. It says, then they began to discuss with one another the fact they had no bread. Now it did say they had one loaf in the boat. Now the disciples hold this meeting in the back of the boat without Jesus because they were discussing among themselves that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, not participating in the conversation, he perceives something's going on in this boat. The front of the boat is Jesus. The back of the boat is all the disciples that have formed a little business meeting. And someone said, he mentioned bread. Uh, the leaven of Herod and the Pharisees, when he says leaven, they think they're about to take another bread journey. And they're going, did you bring bread? I didn't bring bread. Did you bring bread? Did you bring bread? I don't have any bread. So they're having this little meeting without Jesus. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not see or understand? Do you have a hard heart? Most of the times if you stop there, people go, oh yeah, those rotten disciples. And then ask them the question, what's Jesus talking about? I don't know, what's he talking about? Scripture goes on to say, having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? 
And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many basket full of broken pieces you picked up? Little one word answer, little quiz. And they go, 12. And when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large basket full of pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? No. No. I'm totally lost. This is your first week in accounting, okay? No, whatever that class that you're afraid of, this is week one of that. Like, what are you talking about? They were completely clueless. So what is going on on the boat, in the boat, and how does it relate to you this weekend and to this university? First of all, you got to know that who is in the boat is more important than what is in your boat. Who is in the boat is more important than what you have in the boat. So I showed up on my college campus, literally, I'm not exaggerating, with a grocery bag. And back then, we didn't care about what car we drove. We just wanted a set of wheels. I drove this old junky Toyota Corolla. I'm not joking. It had cardboard in the floorboard so that I couldn't see the road. I had a bungee cord hold the parking brake and keep the door closed. I didn't care because that was like everybody else's car. I still got the girl. It ain't the car, it's the driver, mark my word. <laughs> so I showed up with what I thought was nothing in my boat. Now these disciples suddenly default to their mindset of what is my physical resource? What am I bringing to the party? What do I already possess? When I was that kid stepping on my campus, I had just really dedicated my heart to the Lord that summer. I grew up, a lot of chaos, a lot of movement. I often tell people it's true. I was, by the time I was 16, we moved 27 times. It was chaotic. I had no academic desire. I had no academic chops. I didn't know how to study. I was cheating my way through high school, found the Lord, and then I found the Lord and stopped cheating and found out I was really a, a 1.8 to a 2.0 once I took away the cheating. So when I got to college as a 17-year-old freshman, I was a hot mess. If it wasn't for some caring people who could see beyond that initially and help me, speak life into me and guide me, hold me accountable, correct me, but not discard me. Correct me, but not discard me. It changed the course of my life. I could tell you story after story. But when I arrived in college, I thought I had nothing in my boat. I began to discuss, once I saw the demands, once I saw other talented people, once I saw people with a, a car that had a radio, I go, man, all people are not created equal. And I began to look at people that had two pairs of jeans instead of one. And I began to see all the contrasts and discrepancies about who I was compared to them. And man, it was like a freight train against my psyche just to in stay encouraged. And I began to see all this and I began to collapse in a different kind of way. 
God brought a friend or two into my life that have been my friends up until this week. We text this week, my friend Greg Farrington, that I met my first day of school, never knew he was on the planet. I met him in my first hour, and he has remained one of my best friends for nearly 40 years. That's happening this weekend. You've already met them. The best friends for the rest of your life, you've already met them. You don't see it yet, but that's just what happened. But I didn't know what was in my boat. And what happens, we do this constantly in leadership as believers, is that once we get into an uncertainty, we default to our own thinking, and we begin to focus on the fact of, did you bring the bread? I don't have bread. I don't. And we leave Jesus completely out of the conversation because we think the what is bigger than the who. Second thing about this story, which is fascinating to me, is this. These disciples did not believe that Jesus can do for, for them what he has done for others. I'll put it this way. Jesus can do for you what he's done for others. You look at other people's lives, people that made it, and we have deep insecurity that the Lord has limited miracle working power. My parents could not make the payments. Uh, my school, I don't want to tell you what tuition was back then, back in the day, but it might as well have been a million dollars because we didn't have it. Had to take out a little student loan. That ran out. We were still short. I was leaving campus. The financial aid office called me. The guy felt terrible. He said, you have to leave campus now. The Lord supplied supernaturally an amount of money out of nowhere to help me unpack. The guy said, you can unpack your suitcase, you're staying. So I reached inside my Safeway grocery bag and took out my jeans. True story. I didn't believe that Jesus could do for me what he had done for others. These disciples had just seen Jesus. Feed 5,000 and 4,000. That's just the men. But now they were in a boat with him, the disciples, and did not believe that Jesus could do for them what he had done for others. We always default to that fear. And we believe, I know I do believe in miracles and healing and provision and destiny and all of these things in people's lives. But for me, man, I cannot muster that up for myself. I've got to figure this out entirely on my own. So I hold a little meeting without Jesus. And I began to live out on an ocean of fear about the future. They didn't believe that Jesus could do for them what he had done for others. But I'm telling you, so my freshman year, I cheated on my time card. And I know that three quarters of this room has no idea what I'm talking about because you have no idea what a time card is. I was pouring my heart out telling this story, and this person goes, what's a time card? Okay. You put it into this little clock, the sheet of paper, and it went click, and it stamped when you arrived at work, and then when you got off work, click, it stamped when you left. Well, I had no money. I wasn't on the, the food plan, and so we, I started cheating. I was putting an extra hour clocking in early. I was being paid $3 an hour and uh, working four hours a night for 12 bucks, and, but I needed 15 bucks a night to get food. And so the dean of students brought me in, Gary Brugman. He said, Scott, um, 
You're going to lose your job because you need to learn right now you can't cheat on a time card and expect things to go well in life, so you've lost your job. But I'm not going to kick you out of school because I see something in you. When I was selected as the new president, I called Gary up. He lives in Colorado. He's in his 70s. We cried for about five minutes. And I said, Gary, I closed my eyes and I'm back in your office. I'm 17. You should have kicked me off the campus. But you didn't. He said, no. He says, I just remember you had a good heart. You were pretty messed up. But I did see something in you. He said, now I'm not quite sure I saw a university president in you. (laughs) Because I'm not God. But it was those moments that salvaged the trajectory of your life. And I know you look at me and you look at my beautiful wife and our family and you say, well, it just kind of happened for you. Nothing could be further from the truth. This setting and the people that were in my setting 37 years ago, my teachers, Norm Arneson, Ken Olson, Marla Eden, Truett Bobo, Robert Colombo, Dan Albright. These were all my teachers in that sacred space of my classroom that poured into my life. Dick Foth, the president. Paul Bruton was the campus pastor like our amazing Vice President of Spiritual Life, Doug Graham. Parents, that guy right there is the real deal on this campus. And will be caring for the spiritual life of your son or daughter in a profound way. These people, the molecules of these people that stepped into my setting, I carry them inside me today and I'm turning 55 years old. That's what just happened in your life when you came on this campus. So I didn't believe that Jesus could do for me what he had done for other people. But I have come to know over time that he absolutely can do for me what he has done for others. If you will stay humble and hungry, open to correction, to growth, to feedback, to loneliness, to being hurt and not quitting, You will be shocked at where Jesus is about to take your life to places you have never dreamed of before because he can do for you what he has done for others. The last thing, Jeff, is there some worship leaders here? I always joke that always call for the musicians. It gives the people hope. (laughs) See, you already feel hope. Just the fact that I've acknowledged him, now you, don't you just feel hope like Okay, there's the musicians. We can get back to our life soon. Hallelujah. So here's the third thing about the story. Never forget that who's in the boat is more important than what you have in the boat. So Jesus is in your boat. You may not have a ton of money. You may not have fancy clothes. You may not have the GPA that you wish you had coming to this place. My first semester of college, I got a 1.75. I got a 4.0 in my master's degree at Azusa Pacific, and I'm finishing a PhD now in one of the hardest programs in America. So where you start 
is entirely different than where you go. Okay? Now, if one of you tells your parents, President Hagen got a 1.7. <laughs> so I'm tracking good, mom and dad. See? No. We tell our stories so the next generation can avoid them. Do you hear me? When I went to get my master's degree, I'd published five or six books, and I'm in my 40s getting a master's degree at Azusa Pacific, and they looked at my, I had to turn in my transcripts from my undergrad when I was 17, 18, 19, and I was put on academic probation for my first three classes. I was terrified. I'm an established leader in life, and I'm on academic probation at age 47. So I got those first three A's and my master's was removed from academic probation, ended up with a 4.0. And I don't say that to boast. I say that as a point of testimony and healing in my life. I want you to avoid that same journey. But even though you may come here not feeling like you got a lot in your boat, who is in that boat? It's more important than what you have in the boat. And he can do for you, trust me, what he has done for others. But here's the best part of the story. Do you know that Jesus does the most with the least? And they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. So where'd that one loaf of bread go? Because it says they had forgotten to bring bread, so the one loaf had to be there from the day before. (coughs) Now, I don't know about you, but day-old bread sitting in a fishing boat down among the nets with some fish parts and whatever was there the day before. It's not too appealing. They forgot to bring the bread, the text says, and they had one loaf in the boat, so we know it had to already have been there. Somebody stepped in that boat, saw that reeking, filthy piece of bread, and went, toss it overboard, because the text then says they had no bread. Bible's amazing. Where'd that loaf of bread go? Well, somebody took a quick glance at it, made a swift evaluation and said, you're worthless. Yesterday was your day, not today. So they took the bread, they got rid of it because when Jesus mentioned leaven, they're going, we have no bread. Well, no, the Bible says there was a loaf of bread in the boat from the day before the week before. There's all kinds of loaves of bread like that that step on a campus like this. Somebody has made a quick evaluation of you and said, you know what? I don't see a future with you. I don't think you have what it takes. You got a little mold on you, a little this, a little that. Been marinating down there in the fish guts. Ah, I don't want anything to, so ew, let's put that out. So if Jesus could feed 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread, Jeff, and if he could feed 5,000 people with five loaves with 12 baskets left over, now he took seven loaves of bread and fed the smallest amount with the smallest amount of leftovers. He took less bread 
and then fed 5,000 people with more leftovers with less of a starting point. Are you following the math? If seven loaves feeds 4,000, it would seem like five loaves would feed less people and certainly produce less leftovers. But when God is in charge of the kitchen and the math, it works backwards. He actually feeds more people and creates greater abundance with less bread. The more he starts with, the more that we bring, the fewer people that get fed. So guess what one loaf of bread would have fed? I had a mathematician run the numbers. I said, use this and tell me if the equation now had one loaf of bread, how many people would it feed? He did the math. I love nerds. I love nerds. I love nerds. He said, give me, give me an hour. Guy text, his name was Casey Pelsinger. Casey texts me back. He's a math major and whatever. He, he said, if seven loaves fed 4,000, if five loaves fed 5,000 with 12 baskets, one loaf of bread, that one loaf of bread would have fed 12,000 people with 22 baskets left over. Because Jesus always does the most with the least. So if you come to this place the way that I came to my college, feeling like I don't have a lot that I bring to this story here, I want you to know that you are the perfect candidate for God to multiply your life and create leftovers in abundance for the world to be blessed. I do not mean fame and I don't mean fortune. Talk about kingdom influence, which is totally different. But Jesus can take one life totally yielded to him, even a life that's a leftover or forgotten, that's down under the nets, that somebody evaluates and throws overboard. Jesus could have taken that life given to him and fed 12,000 people and had 22 baskets left over. He does the most with the least. I want to pray together. I would like our students now, from this point on, I don't look at a senior different than a freshman. You're all part of this powerful community and family. I don't organize my kids. Okay, I need the one-year-olds here, the four-year-olds over here. No. We're, we're a, a family of leaders. You're emerging scholars. You are going to interpret dreams and you're gonna run the economy. That is who you are. I would like every student, no matter what your grade, to stand up first. Balcony here, freshman, senior, whatever you are, part-time, whatever you are. Every student. Now, I want those students, I just want you to come stand across the front. I need everybody to come on and All the students just to come crowd around the front. Crowd around the front. Crowd around the front. We're not going to organize ourselves by age. We're not going to organize ourselves by church ministries, business. We're not going to organize ourselves 
Certainly not by black, white, or brown, or by male or female. That's not how we're going to organize ourselves. I've been praying for God to give us a university that looks like heaven. Super Saturday. I didn't know there was going to be this many students here today. It's fantastic. Are there any parents left out there? This is impressive. Now I'd like all the faculty and parents to stand, and I just want you to somehow, even if you only get a little way down the aisle or in the aisle, I just want you to crowd toward the front here. And we're going to worship, and we're going to pray for God to release this generation as Daniel 5 leaders. You're going to solve riddles. You're going to solve problems. You're going to unpack in the quandary of our culture. The Spirit of God is going to rest on you as it rested on Daniel. Every young man and woman in this room, you have no idea the ride and the journey you are on. Now listen, don't be thinking about the next step yet because fast is slow and slow is fast. Fast is slow and slow is fast. The more you try to get there fast, it never arrives. The more patient you enjoy the deepening of your day, what God is doing in your life today, when it does arrive, it arrives sooner than you expected. Fast is slow, slow is fast. And so I don't want you to be rushing through college, rushing through this experience on your way to the great career that you miss this moment of deepening, shaping the family that you're a part of, the friends you're, friendships you're going to build are going to be spectacular. But I just want to begin to worship, actually, Jeff, as we were worshiping before. And I just want you to ask God, Lord, do for me what you've done for others. I trust you, Jesus. You're in my boat. It's not who's in this boat or what's in the, not what's in the boat. It's who is in the boat. It's Jesus. And that he will multiply. He will take the smallest thing and feed the most people with it, friends. And he's going to do that through our life. Jeff, just begin to worship. Fill this room up. Let's just lift our hands and make this the first fruits of a historic outpouring of God at North Central this year. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out.